Hello, David. Hey, Renee. What have you been cooking lately? Oh, God, what haven't I been cooking? I, uh, I mm-hmm. just finished today. I baked two loaves of olive, sun-dried tomato, and cheese, Parmesan cheese bread, sourdough, which was yeah. delicious. And the New York Times chocolate chip cookies, always making batches of those. And uh, I made some for some friends. And so that was nice. And um, that's today so far. What about you? <laughs> Uh, I just got takeout carnitas tacos. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the middle of Arizona, so it's like you're allowed to basically just lie on the floor <laughs> with a fan and do nothing for eight hours because it's so damn hot down there. Thank you. That's exactly what I'm doing with <laughs> my carnitas tacos. Exactly. So while you munch on those carnitas and I lick up the crumbs here from my cookies, for <laughs> everyone out there, we've put out a call to our readers and listeners for us to answer your questions and calm your qualms and fix your quagmires. Boy, do we get a lot of them. This is version mm-hmm. 2.0. We've done this once before. And so we're going to answer a couple today, but keep them coming. And in the future, you may even be on the show to ask your question live with us. Which would be terrific. Yes. I'm Renee Shetler, Editor-in-Chief of Leet's Culinaria. And I'm David Leet, its founder, and this is Talking With My Mouthful, Questions, Qualms, and Quagmires, V2.0. So, Renee, here's a great question, I think, to start off the whole thing. It came from an email. It's from Beth, and she says, you guys have the best recipes, and I trust whatever you put out there, but how do you do what you do? Mm. What's the process? I thought that was great, because no one really knows really what we do behind the scenes to get the best stuff out there. Uh, it's kind of an interesting question, actually. I think there's a lot more that goes into it than anyone would ever imagine. That's true. I agree. It starts with cookbooks, right? That's where we derive most of our recipes from. I receive a copy of every cookbook published in the States. And in, um, I think, any English-speaking country, basically, Actually, too. yeah, a lot of foreign cookbooks as well. And I come to think of it, a couple that aren't in English, not a lot. But then I go through them page by page, over and over, back and forth, trying to decide what recipes are most compelling, are going to be most enticing to our readers, right? And that's a little tricky because we try to cover a wide swath, right? Simple, sophisticated, you know, healthy, indulgent, you know, weekend projects, as well as something you can just slam together in five minutes. Right. Maybe 15 minutes. And so we look for those recipes and then we work with the publishers. We're given permission to reprint them. And it doesn't end there though. That's when the work That's really when the work begins. begins. Yeah, exactly. There's a team of three of us who go through every recipe before we send them out to our team of recipe testers. We've got- How many now? More than a hundred, It's 150, a bunch were just let in. It could be, I'll have to double check. Um, but yeah, dozens and dozens and dozens of people have eyes on these recipes before they ever have a hope of making it on the site. Right. right. And so before we send the recipes to testers, we go through and ask all these all cap questions really loud, like shouting, right? Like, did it really just take three to five minutes or did it look the way the recipe described? Is it seven grams of salt? Is it nine grams of salt? How much exactly? Exactly. Did you really need that optional dollop of chipotle? You know, Something or other, yes. Something or other, right? So we, like, no stone unturned. And so these people make them in their home kitchens, and they give us all their feedback. We ask them to give us another ranking from zero to 10, right? 10 obviously being highest. Every once in a while, we get an 11, which I love to see. That's great. 
but they also give us their feedback. Boy, did they give us our feedback, right. right? And that's where the recipes really go to the next level, isn't it? We spend hours editing each and every recipe so that we can address every concern that was raised during testing. Because here's the big thing that I think not many people realize. Just because a recipe makes it into a cookbook doesn't mean it works. Or that it's spectacular. Exactly, or maybe it works, but it's just like, uh, yeah, it's okay. I'm not gonna make that again. Yeah. But here's the travesty in that, is that so many people are kind of insecure or new to cooking, yeah. and they think because a recipe didn't work, it was their fault. They and blame they themselves, they cook. the blame game. The blame game, and so that's why we do this. We really wanna prevent that type of experience. I would say in each session, probably at least 30% of the recipes that we test never make it onto the site. Yeah, They're simply not good enough. People don't realize that, that what they're seeing on Leeds Culinary is the best of the best of the best. And that's why Absolutely. we have such a high, I'm not into sports as you know, but a high batting average, is that what they call it? Or mm. high passing average or something? Bat batting Quarterbacking average, average quarterbacking average, I don't know. <laughs> so, we know what you mean, it's you know okay. I mean. Absolutely, we wanna set readers up for success. The only way a recipe makes it onto the site is if it either comes out of the gate amazing or if we can tweak it enough, either the actual making of the recipe or just even the instructions to make them a little more clearer. Right. Right. And that's why people say to us, you guys never disappoint me. That's why oh, we do God. what we do. I know. If I could only hear that in other parts of my life, you do not <laughs> disappoint me, I would be a happy man. So we have another question. This is from Thomas, and this now we're getting into bread. And Thomas says, I'm getting better and better with my sourdough bread thanks to your podcast with Andrew Janjigian from America's Test Kitchen. But I have a problem. My loaves start out great when I put them in, but they start to spread and flatten out when they bake. Mm. Any idea why? Now, Well, you're the bread baker, David. What I am. Think? And interestingly enough, earlier today, I had... My friend, Kevin Moss, who is a great bread baker, he came over here to drop off what? Bread and his homemade <laughs> granola. He's starting a business. And we talked about it. And he, he said the same thing that I thought. And I actually suffer from this sometimes too, overproofing the dough, which means you're allowing the dough to rise so much before it goes into the oven that there's just no more, there's no more juju in the, in the oh, bread. So okay. It doesn't really rise in the oven because it rises too much before that. And I think mm -hmm. this also goes hand in hand. It's interesting we got this question now, goes hand in hand with the warmer weather. People think, oh, leave oh. it out at room temperature for X amount of time. Well, the truth of the matter is it's much warmer in our kitchens right now than it was in January. Of course. And so that I think is one of the biggest things. So I'm doing an experiment on my next batch of bread and I'm going to let it sit half the time and see if that saves up some of that spring when it goes into the oven. It's called oven spring, see what happens. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think is going on, Thomas. I will let you know. Well, we also received a question that's kind of the opposite situation. Um, this woman, Sarah, wrote in saying, my dough always seems to take longer than the recipe instructs to rise and it never quite doubles. And she asked if we have any idea why. <laughs> and... She live in the, <laughs> in the Arctic? Maybe it's very cold where <laughs> she lives. I didn't interrogate her as to her zip code, but um, I will say that we just had a recipe tester, Jessie, try a bread recipe for us. And she was so funny. She told us how her house was crazy cool that day. Right. 
and the dough just wasn't rising. And so she carried the bowl of sourdough bread dough, her bread baby, she called it, around the house with her. So the warmth of her body- Are you serious? Would help the dough rise. Yeah, it was great. Do you remember those little flour sack babies you had to carry around in like high school? No, I Like you had to pretend that, you know, you were caring for an infant. No, I'm too old. I didn't have that. Well, anyways, same idea here, right? um, But it worked. And so a lot of people, I think, underestimate as well just how warm it needs to be in order for those little enzymes in Right, for those dough. people who are air conditioning. So my question is for you, Renee, then, is not everyone is going to be walking around with a flour sack baby of sourdough. So what do you do <laughs> then if you don't want to carry this thing around? Well, the funny thing is she shared that story of hers by email. And so all of our other testers chimed in with their tips. And the most common one was something I've done in the past that works magnificently. You simply put the bowl of dough in your oven, turned off with the door shut, with the light bulb on. And the warmth from that light bulb is just enough to create that environment where the dough's happy. Yeah. And for those people who have a professional oven, like we've got an oven that really is considered quote unquote pro, sometimes the light bulb can be a little bit strong and a little bit hot. Mm, So what I do is I will just keep the light bulb turned off. I'll blast the oven for 20 seconds at 200 degrees and stop it. So it's just barely on. And that gives just enough residual heat that it keeps the ambient temperature about 80 degrees in the oven. And it's perfect. It just, it does its job. And also one thing to remember, guys, if you are raising your dough in, raising your dough as if it's a child, right? Letting your dough rise in a container that's plastic, that kind of insulates it. So you gotta be careful with that too, because that will mm. the temperature will kind of go up rather quickly. So that's something to think about too. What kind of container are you letting your dough rise in? So let's see, we have another question here. Gosh, it's about bread. We're bread, 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 right, Renee? Everyone's still Everyone's doing their bread. Everyone's bread. So this yeah. is a question from Terry, and she says that she's tried a sourdough starter recipe, and despite the clear instructions in this recipe by day five, she has to abort due to the stench the starter created in her house. It was a sharp blue cheese smell, and the starter was oozy. That doesn't sound very nice, mm. does it? She said the directions and the recipe seemed clear until what was happening with the starter didn't match up with what the recipe said should be happening. So That's any idea- of what you think that could be. I have my thoughts. You know, if it was me, I probably would have done the same as her and just figured I did something wrong mm, and see. start over again. Blame, blame, blame. You're playing the cook blame game. One mm. shouldn't do that. One should never play the blame game. No, what it is Well, is, what would you do? Well, a lot of times, all different flowers... All flowers have bacteria on them, which is why some people will see that Andrew Janjigian talked about this, that incredible initial rise when you start doing your starter, like day two or day three, you'll see this incredible rise because that's the natural bacteria on the flower or in the flower. Mm, But at some point that switches over to what's the bacteria in your environment. And what's happening there most likely, it has something to do with the type of flower, not that the flower is bad, But basically the starter is saying, I want to eat, feed me, (laughs) feed me. That's what it's saying. And it wants to be fed. So just take your small little- Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like me, it's hangry, very hangry. You take a little bit of that starter and then you feed it. And then eventually that smell will go away, but you've got some of that wonderful bacteria starting to take over and owning itself because it's going from the bacteria in the flower to the bacteria in your home. So- The answer to that is don't throw it away. Keep going. Persist. Persist there, Terry. 
Even in that awkward teenage stage. <laughs> yes, persist. Okay, so we've got another question. Reader named Debbie. She shared that she just tackled her first donut recipe. Oh, good for Yay, her. Yay, Debbie. Yay, Debbie. Right? Yeah. And she said her biggest question is a type of oil that she should be using. She said, I hated the smell of the oil. Was there a certain type I should have used for frying as opposed to sauteing or drizzling? Huh. Well, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it has to do not just with the type of oil, but with the smoke point right. of the oil she chose. Right. And a smoke right. point is? A smoke point is, quite literally, the drum, temperature drum, 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 or the drum, point drum, drum. Yes. <laughs> at which an oil begins to smoke. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and different oils have different smoke points, depending on what they're made from. Right. We actually explained this recently in an article published on the site. We can go into more detail there, but just to keep things simple for here, for deep frying, especially donuts, you're probably going about 350 degrees. I'm hoping she was using uh, some sort of thermometer of sorts, right? To make sure that the oil's not getting too hot or dipping too low. And if you take an oil past the smoke point, not only will it start to smoke, I mean, that's your first sign, right? But the oil, the components are going to start to degrade. Yeah. Right? And as they do, they oxidize, and that can throw off all kind of nasty juju, right? including an off aroma. And an off taste, too. Exactly. So, you know, all those donuts that you spent your morning slaving over. Yeah. yeah. And the kind of oil, so too, for something like that, I would suggest a neutral oil, a canola mm-hmm. oil, maybe using that, or a corn oil. I wouldn't use peanut oil for something like that because it's you want Absolutely. that would not or be like, right. I tend to like a rice bran oil, grapeseed oil. Only my grapeseed oil. oil's it's a bit pricey. expensive. Yeah. Grapeseed's not what you call cheap. And you want to make sure that it's a refined oil because refined oils have a much higher uh, smoking point or smoke point than the unrefined oils. So that's something to, to kind of pay attention to, Debbie. I hope that answers some of your questions. Um, and so let's see what we have next. So I hear this question a lot, especially this time of year. And in fact, I've asked this question myself years ago. So people reach out, they say, I want to make homemade preserves, but I've never actually done that full official, like half a day hot water canning thing. Yeah, the whole sauna thing. Yeah. Jacuzzi. The whole sauna thing. They want to know, do I have to do that processing, even if I just want to make a small batch of preserves, Mm. right? Is there a shortcut? That's the jam jacuzzi question, right? (laughs) It's the quickie, right? So the answer is yes and no, right? Yes, there is a shortcut, but you can't treat it like you would if you did the full deal. Right. Right. We call it fridge jam, right? What you do is instead of going ahead and ladling the jam into jars, sealing them up, submerging them in water, heating them at the proper temperature for the proper amount of time, and then letting them cool and making sure the little lids are like concave. Little poppy sounds, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know it's really simple once you do it. I've been told that by everybody, but I'm just it I'm lazy. It is. Right? So You are. Fridge jam. You are lazy. <laughs> no, right, she's well, not. We're going to talk about that later. Very hard working. <laughs> very hard working. So fridge jam, all you do is you take the jam, you put it into whatever containers you've got, and you shove it in the fridge. Now, the trick is you've got to get rid of it within a couple of weeks before bacteria can form, because that's a whole point of processing, right. right? Is you kind of keep the preserves airtight so that nothing can sneak in that you don't want in there. Mm-hmm. But that's not, come on, it's homemade jam. That's not a problem. And if you do think it is a problem, then 
put it into a nice little jar and give some to your neighbors or your friends. But the great thing about this time of year, there's fruit everywhere. So doing small batch processing Mm -hmm. is so easy. Well, not even small batch processing, small batch cooking. Cooking, you know, a pint or two pints of strawberries and cooking it down so you just got a couple of cups and that's perfect. That'll go in no time. In our house, it'll go in no time. Just look at your recipe and either have or third or quarter it, you know, depending on the measurements. It's really easy. It's not rocket science. If you can do second grade math, you can do that. Right. Now, if you're someone who wants to buy 18 pallets of strawberries and 47 pallets of blueberries and two mm-hmm. trees worth of peaches to preserve, then that's something different. And you really should be doing it through the proper processing because you can't eat that much unless you're going to be giving away or selling it. And then it can stay in your closet or your cool pantry for quite a long time. That's what we do every once in a while. But we tend to do now, for the most part here, when we see such gorgeous fruit, we just do small little batch. Really, sometimes it's just eight ounces. Absolutely. That's all it takes to satisfy the craving, right? Especially, you know, it's just me. I live alone, but I still want all those things I grew up on, right? I'm but I don't need jar after jar after jar in my basement like my grandma made. Right. So uh, I actually- So you're not a hoarder once... then basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a minimalist, somewhere in between. Uh-huh. I actually saw this referred to one time, so charming, instant gratification jam. I thought oh, that was really sweet. nice. that's sweet. That's very, that, that, it's true. It is because you cook it down and it chills. You have it in a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. That's good. So we have, this is a very simple one, very common question. I don't even know who said it, actually. It just came across our transom. How do I make certain my pasta doesn't get all glued together? Ah, yes. Mm. Common cooking conundrum. Absolutely. A lot of times you hear about people slicking their cooked drained pasta with oil to get it to kind of unstick, right? Nope. That's actually a fix for something that should never have happened in the first place. Because that Um, way, if you do that, the sauce will never stick to your pasta. Exactly. Everything just slides, slides right, right off. off. Exactly. Yep. So the way to prevent that whole situation is pretty simple. I mean, tell me if you do differently, David, but I just make sure I use sufficient water to cook the pasta. Mm-hmm. Right? Pasta, you know, obviously it's a carbohydrate, so it sort of leaks starch as it cooks. Exactly. And that starch is sticky. And I mean, it's not even the gluten, like even gluten-free pastas will do this too. Right? And that's Sticky starch, it's what causes a pasta to clump together. That's why you hear that old wives' tale about knowing pasta is done when you take a strand out of the pot and you throw it against the wall right? and it sticks, yeah. right? Have you ever tried that? Oh, I did it all the time in college. Can't say it actually worked. I think it's just more of a wives' tale, old wives' tale. I'll tell you the easiest way, because I don't use a lot of water. You know, you say that you're lazy when it comes to jam making. I'm lazy when it comes to pasta making. If I could make pasta in two cups of water, I'd be very happy. I don't want to get... Well, does it really take that much more effort to pour a quart of water into the pot? No, but it takes that much more time for the water to heat up and boil. Of course it does. When I want my three ingredient mac and cheese that we have on the site, I don't want to have to wait 48 minutes for my three ingredient (laughs) mac and cheese. I want it in 10 minutes. Do you put the lid on the pot when you bring the water to a boil, David? Oh my, does that really help? Oh, I never thought of that. Of course I do. Of course I do. The only way to make it work so your pasta doesn't stick together is as soon as you put it in, stir it. Stir it really well Mm. and keep on stirring it. What you're doing is as that starch starts coming, try to say that six times fast. As that starch... As that starch starts coming off and goes into the water, 
you're making, you're coding it, so therefore it doesn't stick. So even things like linguini or tagliatelle or something like that, I just stir for the first minute, and then it never ever sticks. It's fantastic. So you're basically agitating the water, just I, like yes. you agitate me. Exactly. See, that's why you and I don't stick together. I agitate you constantly. <laughs> that's what I do. I just stir, 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 and the next thing I know, it's not sticking together. And the more water you have in which to stir the pasta, mm-hmm. the less it will stick. I think you want at least four quarts of water for a pound of dried pasta. Yeah, you know, maybe there is some formula. I'm sure there is somewhere. And some food scientist is probably rolling his or her eyes at what I'm saying. So that's probably true. But what I find is that when I use less water, that wonderful pasta water is really rich. So therefore, when you pour it mm. into the sauce, you get some more really great stuff going on. It thickens it really nicely as opposed to watered down pasta water. Think about that. That's a conundrum. That's like when a bear walks into a woods and claps its hands so it does a tree fall, <laughs> something like that. Um, so, watered down pasta water. I'm watered down pasta that. water, exactly. Well, those are great questions. I Far more than I actually anticipated, but I think we've got some really wonderful things here. And mm-hmm. um, so thank you, everybody. Remember, keep sending those questions in and someday we're going to be able to get you on the show to ask the questions and we can answer you directly. And we would you could, love that. And you can then ask us even more. And so now, Renee, turning to you, it is that time again. Can you tell us what is on the specials board for this week? I can. Well... I've had a hunch that people are still doing a lot of bread baking. So I we're would running say, one of considering our, we had all those questions, right? Considering, right? And so in honor of that, we've been bringing up some of our favorite bread recipes, including our favorite homemade burger buns. Mm. These have it all over the store-bought version. And people who've made these are raving about them. They're saying they had no idea it could be so easy to make their own buns at home. And these have like a little slightly sweeter taste, but a better texture than anything you can buy on a store shelf, right? They're not too dense, but they're a little brioche-like, a little buttery. They just, they're just perfect in every way. Excellent. We also have that vanilla ice cream recipe. Yes. You can make it with or without an ice cream maker. We have a slideshow of all of our favorite rib recipes, as well as our favorite fixins, right? Coleslaw, potato salad, cornbread, all the requisite musts. Excellent. We tell you how to make your own Southern sweet tea, right? Oh, well, that's a must, a must for July 4th. If you want to spike it or not, that's up to you. That's even more of a must for July 4th. (laughs) And then keeping on our Southern theme, we bring you the most amazing peach cobbler recipe. This is a real old fashioned approach. We, you know, fruit on the bottom, this kind of biscuity type crumbly crust on top. And then you pour hot water over the top and it works magic. Like the sugar in the biscuit dough and the hot water collide and they make this really crackly crust, kind of like what you get on top of the best brownie. It's just, it's superlative. We have so many readers who tell us they didn't think fruit dessert could be as good as this, right? That's great. Anything else? Oh, we've got a lot else. We've got red wine popsicles. We've got Catherine Hepburn's famous brownie recipe. Mm. We've got our Nashville hot fried chicken. Mm-hmm. You're just going to have to check it out. Yeah, maybe I'll stop by your site one of these days. I heard it's very good. <laughs> There's that David Lighty. I think he's the one. Leedy, he's the one who owns it. I think I need to stop by. Yeah, yeah. He's a little full of himself, but he's a nice guy. Yeah. This podcast is produced by Over at Studios, and our producer is the pinch hitter, David Parker in for the vacationing Adam Claremont. 
You can reach David, Adam, and Overit Studios at overitstudios.com. And remember to subscribe to Talking With My Mouthful wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear and want to support us, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Ciao. Ciao.